0: Welcome to the Acton Institute Events Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, Executive Producer. Today, we're bringing you the most recent presentation from our Acton Lecture Series program, featuring the recipient of the Acton Institute's 2020 Novak Award, Dr. Gregory Collins. Named after distinguished American theologian Michael Novak, this honor rewards new, outstanding scholarly research concerning the relationship between religion, economic freedom, and a free and virtuous society. It recognizes those scholars early in their academic career who demonstrate outstanding intellectual merit in advancing the understanding of theology's connection to human dignity, the importance of the rule of law, limited government, religious liberty, and freedom in economic life. Gregory M. Collins is a postdoctoral associate and lecturer in the program on ethics, politics, and economics at Yale University. His book on Edmund Burke's economic thought, Commerce and Manners in Edmund Burke's Political Economy, was published by Cambridge University Press in 2020 and has already gathered significant attention inside and outside the academic community. He has published or has forthcoming articles on Burke, Adam Smith, Leo Strauss, Britain's East India Company, and Frederick Douglass in the Review of Politics, History of Political Thought, American Political Thought, Journal of the History of Economic Thought, Slavery and Abolition, and Perspectives on Political Science. His current book project is a comparative study of Burke and the Enlightenment. In this lecture, drawing out some important themes of his recently published book on Edmund Burke's economic thought – Commerce and Manners in Edmund Burke's Political Economy, Dr. Collins explains whether Burke overcame perhaps the most powerful moral and metaphysical objection to commercial exchange, that the never-ending process of economic satisfaction is fundamentally at odds with the good life. To learn more about upcoming and previous Acton Institute events, please visit our website at acton.org events. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Institute Events is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of the Acton Institute, I would like to welcome all of you to the 2020 Callahan Lecture and Annual Presentation of the Novak Award. Uh, May I first thank all of you for joining us to this live stream presentation. Created in the year 2000, thanks to the generosity of Mr. Joseph L. Callahan, and named after the theologian, the late Michael Novak, the Novak Award rewards outstanding research into the relationship between theology, economic freedom, and the free and virtuous society by recognizing those early career scholars who demonstrate intellectual merit in advancing the understanding of theology's connection to themes of freedom, especially economic liberty. It comes with a $15,000 prize. In past years, it has been awarded to scholars from Argentina, Australia, France, Singapore, the United States, Finland, Germany, Lithuania, and Poland, just to name a few. This year, the Novak Award has been awarded to Dr. Gregory M. Collins. Dr. Collins is a postdoctoral associate and lecturer in the program of ethics, politics, and economics at Yale University. His book on Edmund Burke's economic thought Commerce and Manners in Edmund Burke's Political Economy, was published by Cambridge University Press this year, last year in 2020, and has already garnered significant attention from both inside and outside the academic community. One reviewer describes his book as the definitive account of Burke's economic thought capturing his, quote, underlying coherence that incorporated elements of prudence, utility, and tradition, close quote. It is precisely this sort of deep, balanced, and wide-ranging scholarship which is sensitive to both freedom and virtue, which the Novak Award seeks to recognize. He has published or has forthcoming articles on Burke, Adam Smith, Leo Strauss, Britain's East India Company, and Frederick Dulles in such publications as Review of Politics, History of Political Thought, American Political Thought, the Journal of the History of Economic Thought, Slavery and Abolition, and Perspectives on Political Science. His current book project is a comparative uh, study of Burke and the Enlightenment. One of the requirements of accepting the Novak Award is that the winner is required to deliver the Callahan Lecture, named, of course, after uh, Mr. Callahan. Dr. Collins' lecture today will be published as a longer paper in the Acton Institute's peer-reviewed academic journal, the Journal of Markets and Morality. So without further ado, and is with great pleasure that I would like to invite Dr. Collins' to deliver the 2020 Callahan Lecture. Dr. Collins. First,
2: I would like to thank Father Sirico, Samuel Gregg, Dan Hugger, and the rest of the Acton Institute uh, team for the opportunity to give a talk here today. Acton continues to do an exemplary job in advancing our understanding of the deep connection between markets and morals. An urgent imperative amid contemporary public debate over the efficacy of free markets globalization, and neoliberalism in the wider social order. Furthermore, I'm deeply honored and grateful to have been conferred the Novak Award and humbled to be in a position to help continue the legacy of Michael Novak, whose rigorous work on religion, ethics, and economics endures as a model of scholarship for all students of human nature. Now, my purpose today is to draw out some of the important themes of my recently published book on Edmund Burke's economic thought, titled *Commerce and Manners in Edmund Burke's Political Economy*, which I'll right here. It does make for the perfect beach read if a reading 500 plus pages uh, page books on 18th century thinkers is your thing. In particular, I will explain whether Burke himself overcame perhaps the most powerful moral and metaphysical objection to commercial exchange that dates back to classical political philosophy. First, however, allow me to provide brief background on Burke. Burke was a British philosopher-statesman of Irish origin who was most famous for his attack on the French Revolution, his sympathy for the American colonists during the War of Independence, and his defense of party government. In his criticism of the French Revolution, as captured in his most famous writing, Reflections on the Revolution in France, Burke outlined themes that have settled as guiding principles of conservative thought, such as the fallible nature of man, the dangers of abstract reason, the distilled wisdom of the ages, the menace of social engineering, the perils of leveling society, the complexity of circumstance, the virtue of prudence, the balance between conservation and reform, the sanctity of property, the limits of voluntary contracts, the hazards of fiat money, and the responsibilities of civil society from generation to generation. Accordingly, Burke is often identified as the godfather of conservatism. Although there is a strong argument, argument to be made that these themes overlap with strands of liberal and progressive thought as well. As I explained in my book, however, Burke was also a keen student of economic matters who provided sharp insight into trade, taxation, and revenue throughout the 18th century. Burke's emergence as a political thinker and legislator arrived at an opportune moment for someone interested in the subject of political economy. He confronted fundamental economic questions in his analysis of England's grain trade, Anglo-American imperial affairs, Anglo-Irish free trade, and the political economy of the British Empire, including the British West Indies and the British India, that hold the resonance to this day. The 18th century in general represented a crucial inflection point in the study of political economy. For it was a time when prevailing religious and paternalistic understandings of economics as a branch of ethics collided with the advent of classical economics, which in many ways departed from these traditional conceptions of the proper role of of commerce in civil society. Burke was not a peripheral player, but a central political actor and thinker in these debates. He was one of the most perceptive students of political economy in the British Parliament and in British intellectual life throughout the 1700s. A not insignificant distinction itself for legislators continued to be puzzled by the mysterious movements of mobile property during this time period. He was also one of the most influential men in shaping Britain's commercial policy, including its imperial commercial policy, and in providing clear-eyed arguments about the virtues and limits of market exchange that we can learn from today. We may characterize him uh, not only as a philosopher then, but also as a policy wonk with a powdered wig. Now, the structure for my talk here today will proceed as follows. First, I'll provide brief comments on Burke's views on market economies and his intellectual connection to F.A. Hayek, the distinguished Austrian economist. Next, I'll explain one of the most persuasive critiques of commercial activity that was articulated by Aristotle and that Hayek's thought struggled to overcome. And finally, I'll explain whether Burke's conception of political economy was able to meet this Aristotelian challenge to commercial exchange. Burke was a firm defender of market economies, particularly in regard to England's internal grain trade throughout his political life. As demonstrated in his primary economic writing, Thoughts and Details on Scarcity, published in 1795, he contended that British government officials did not hold the foresight and knowledge necessary to regulate agricultural employment contracts with vigor and effect. Instead, Burke posited that an invisible hand type phenomenon, what he called the benign and wise disposer of all things, could channel enlightened self-interest in the internal green market toward the public welfare. Such epistemic modesty informed his belief that socioeconomic order could emerge from the private interactions among consumers, middlemen and producers in the marketplace, free from arbitrary state intervention. Allow me to offer one key quotation from Faults and Details that captures these beliefs. When commenting on the great difficulty of uniform wage regulations, to embody the wide varieties of labor in the agricultural economy, Burke writes, "Quote: Laws prescribing, or magistrates exercising, a very stiff and often inapplicable rule, or a blind and rash discretion, never can provide the just proportions between earning and salary on the one hand, and nutriment on the other. Whereas interest, habit, and the tacit convention." that arise from a thousand nameless circumstances, produce a tact that regulates without difficulty what laws and magistrates cannot, cannot regulate at all. For Burke then, the competitive price system, voluntary labor contracts and government restraint were prerequisites for a flourishing trade and a prosperous people. The wizardry of supply and demand laws coordinated the flow of provisions throughout England in an efficient manner, including to needy areas and they help meet the particular preferences of different consumers and producers in a diverse and vibrant agricultural economy. Burke also praised the middlemen in this economy for helping encourage the timely distribution of resources. In fact, and I recently just learned this while teaching a course this past semester on constitutional law and business ethics, but one of the most famous antitrust cases in Supreme Court history, Standard Oil versus New Jersey from 1911, some of you may be familiar with that, uh, cited the Burke-led parliamentary repeal of England's statutory bans on middlemen trading activities in 1772 as an example of the English people's growing realization at the time that preserving market liberty for grain traders rather than raising prices and obstructing the flow of goods actually generated great advantages to the economy, to the economy in the long run. All these insights into the merits of government restraint may sound familiar because in many ways Burke anticipated F.A. Hayek's reflections on the limits of individual rationality in coordinating complex social and economic activities. In Hayek's celebrated essay, the use of knowledge in society, he famously provides a vehement endorsement of economic decentralization and the competitive price system for disseminating innumerable, innumerable bits of knowledge throughout broader society. Quote, the continuous flow of goods and services is maintained by constant deliberate adjustments by new dispositions made every day in the light of circumstances not known the day before, Hayek writes. It would thus be impossible for government to fix prices that could ensure the efficient allocation of resources. Therefore, he insists that the, quote, ultimate decisions must be left to the people who are familiar with these circumstances, who know directly of the relevant changes and of the resources immediately available to meet them. This sentence could be integrated into thoughts and details with seamless effort. For both Burke and Hayek, the quiet wisdom of the market vastly exceeded the powers of rational cognition in facilitating the dynamic exchange of goods. Burke's and Hayek's defense of market economies and the competitive price system leads me to my specific question today. Whether Burke successfully overcame perhaps the most persuasive philosophical and moral objection to commercial exchange, or what today we would call capitalism, I'm first going to briefly outline the intellectual context behind this question with reference to Aristotle and Hayek before describing Burke's thoughts on the matter. And so let me ask you, what are some of the most powerful criticisms of free market capitalism? They include, it encourages avarice, breeds crass commercialism, loosens morals, undermines social customs and traditions, monetizes human relations, encourages vast wealth inequalities, promotes the exploitation of workers, alienates man from his labor, the production process, his nature, and his fellow man. Yet perhaps the most compelling moral and metaphysical metaphysical critique of commercial activity spans back to Aristotle. The first and most important dimension to note about Aristotle's economic thought is that it was informed by his broader conception of teleology, the idea that all things can best be understood by their final purpose. We should ask not simply what a thing is, but why it is and what it exists for. A car exists for the sake of transport, for instance. The New England Patriots, my favorite NFL team, exists for the sake of winning Super Bowls. Clearly they have fulfilled this teleological aim in the last 20 years or so, although not so much in the past couple of years. Let us then apply Aristotle's teleology to his political and economic thought. Early in the politics, most comprehensive statement of his political theory, Aristotle famously writes that the purpose of a political community was not to live, but to live well. Acknowledging that states emerged from the instinct to secure life, he nevertheless observes that such communities thrive when their members pursue the good life that culminates in happiness, or what he called eudaimonia. This goal was distinct from that of non-rational animals who lived for the sake of self-preservation. Yet for Aristotle, human beings were rational creatures and thus lived for this higher purpose of happiness, which blended the habituation of character traits with the exercise of man's contemplative faculties, rather than for the mere enjoyment of food and shelter. This conception of the good life built the uh, the theoretical frame for Aristotle's intriguing comments on commerce and the politics, that speak to the problems Burke addressed in his commentary on political economy, and that we all wrestle with today when discussing the merits of capitalism, free trade and globalization. Although commentators often note that classical political philosophers were hostile to the idea of commercial intercourse, it is important to re- recognize that according to Aristotle, the purchase and exchange of goods for goods or money was a natural and reasonable activity to engage in as a human being, as long as it fulfill- fulfilled a concrete end. We grow or purchase food for the purpose of consumption, for instance. And Aristotle was certainly attentive to the importance of reciprocal fulfillment and voluntary exchange. In Aristotle's judgment, however, the pursuit of money for the sake of money was unnatural. It was an unlimited endeavor governed by no final teleological moral aim. Aristotle writes in the politics that the acquisition of goods for the sake of acquisition, this was was the negative form of a type of market activity he called crematisticae, was unnatural because there's thought to be no, quote, no limit to wealth or property. Accordingly, he writes that people who store coined money without limit, quote, are eager for life, but not for the good life. So desire for life being unlimited, they desire also an unlimited amount of what enables it to go on. Such people, quote, turn all skills into skills of acquiring goods as though that were the end and everything had to serve that end. This reasoning was adopted by Thomas Aquinas and represents the fundamental moral and metaphysical objection to commercial exchange. The acquisition of goods and wealth is seen as an end in itself. Yet men and women are never fully satisfied in this activity because there are no natural moral boundaries to making money and acquiring goods. According to such logic, this lack of fulfillment breeds the negative attributes of commercial economies that critics often identify today. Avarice, egotistical individualism, materialism, hedonism, sensualism, libertinism, anxiety, emptiness, frustration, temptation, and so on. Aristotle complements this reasoning in the Nicomachean Ethics, his most famous ethical work, by describing three types of equal friendships, all of which had different ends. Friendships for utility, friendships for pleasure, and complete friendships. Friendships for utility employ friends as a means to serve self-interested ends, while friendships of pleasure are driven by the lower passions. Both types of friendships, Aristotle writes, are transient arrangements that are, quote, easily dissolved. Yet complete friendship is the friendship of quote, good people because they wish for the good in the other friend for that friend's own sake and as an end in itself. These friends hold an unconditional relationship bound by shared conceptions of virtue. Unlike friendships for utility or pleasure, complete friendships are quote, enduring as long as people possess good character. Aristotle is thus arguing that the noblest form of friendship is not based on calculating expediency, ad hoc social arrangements, fleeting partnerships of convenience, or the satisfaction of sensual desire. Human beings, human relationships based on utility, such as economic transactions or pleasure based on immediate sexual fulfillment, carry no lasting basis of love and virtue. Friendships of utility certainly have a vital role in a community, otherwise there could be no production and distribution of goods. But a heavy reliance on them as the anchor of social order would threaten the capacities of men and women to achieve true happiness and virtue and justice in essence aristotle harbors a measured understanding of markets they serve a useful and an even important utility in meeting our individual individual temporary desires but they do not fully satisfy the end aim of human life happiness framed differently the engines of markets production and consumption were cyclical produce consume, repeat. From the perspective of Aristotle and the Aristotelian way of thinking, how is this different from non-rational animals? Animals need food and shelter to survive. They need to produce and consume over and over again. But once again, they never reach a teleological goal of human life, eudaimonia, happiness. If human beings were in fact distinct creatures from non-rational animals then, there need to be an additional dimension to the meaning of their existence in order to achieve final fulfillment and reach the highest aims of rational creatures. Otherwise, we would imprison ourselves to the animalistic instincts instincts of self-preservation that in Aristotle's judgment characterized brutes. Now, let us fast forward to the 20th century and consider F.A. Hayek's connection to this moral conundrum of markets. What does Hayek have to do with Aristotle and our question of the ethical implications of market economies? Here's what I propose. Hayek himself rejected any final teleological aim of his ideal society. This belief was largely driven by his idea of spontaneous order. The notion that social order grew organically absent rational design. Therefore, I suggest that Hayek's economic thought and influential arguments in favor of capitalism today might in fact remain vulnerable to the Aristotelian critique of commercial activity. Allow me to offer a few representative quotations from Hayek to underscore this point. Quote. In a free society, he writes, in Law, Legislation, and Liberty, the general good consists principally in the facilitation of the pursuit of unknown individual purposes. Hayek also states in the text that the, conception of justice as we understand it, in a rules connected open society, was the principle of treating all under the same rules. This conception, quote, then became the guide in the progressive approach to an open society of free individuals before the law. Hayek's theory of justice then, relied heavily on procedural considerations. To quote, judge actions by rules, not by particular results, is the step which has made the open society possible. Justice, Justice did not quote, aim at bringing about a particular state of affairs, which is regarded as just. In addition, he writes, that the prime public concern must be directed not towards particular known needs, but toward the conditions for the preservation of a spontaneous order which enables the individuals to provide for their needs and manners not known to authority was well understood throughout most of history. Indeed, one subhead in the second volume of Law, Legislation, and Liberty is titled, quote, a free society is a pluralistic society without a common hierarchy of particular ends. In his more famous work, The Constitution of Liberty. He declares, quote, it is one of the characteristics of a free society that men's goals are open. In brief, Hayek's conception of justice and the state were characterized by procedure, grounded in skepticism, and resisted common teleological aims of man. He embraced a form of value in institutional pluralism in his political thought, and pushed back against the idea that there was a hierarchy of ends in civilization, which is why he assigned greater priority to individual liberty over shared moral and political goals in a political community, and dismissed the idea that there's one final purpose that all human beings should aspire to achieve. There is much to be said for Hayek's thought, he was one of the greatest economists and political philosophers of the 20th century, and he recognized a compatibility between tradition and freedom. Yet his hesitation to endorse a common hierarchy of ends, I suggest, is what makes his economic thought vulnerable to Aristotle's critique of commercial exchange and to the belief that there was a shared aim, happiness grounded in moral virtue, reason, and the contemplative, contemplative life that all rational beings should seek. The Aristotelian critique of the Hayekian understanding of markets leads us to the problem Burke's economic thought raises. If Burke defended market economies, which he did, did he therefore repudiate the Aristotelian Thomistic conception of the good life as a final aim that transcended the pursuit of wealth and the cyclical never-ending process of economic utilitarian satisfaction, production, consumption, repeat, for the sake of self-preservation? Was his conception of political economy vulnerable to Aristotle's diagnosis of the limits of commerce? Here's what I propose, which I draw out in my book. As mentioned, Burke embraced Hayekian insights, or really, he anticipated Hayekian insights into the limits of rationality in coordinating economic affairs, which is one chief reason why Burke was a firm proponent of commercial exchange. But, and this is crucial to understanding his conception of political economy, Burke also located his support for markets in a wider and pre existing religious and social order that was not primarily dependent on unplanned evolution of society and voluntary contractual arrangements between consenting groups and individuals. And in this context, I propose that he did retain the the Aristotelian idea, that there were final aims of life, a hierarchy of ends, that men and women and political communities as a whole should yearn to pursue beyond utilitarian satisfaction and the preservation of spontaneous order. Now, the difficult thing in studying Burke is that he tended not to write systematic treatises. So you have to do a little sleuthing to draw out the intellectual coherence in his thoughts. But if you read his commentary on the French Revolution carefully, you'll notice that Burke does reveal his preferences for the final aims of life, this hierarchy of ends that all human beings should seek. For it is in his writings and speeches on the revolution that he gave a clear priority to the primacy of religion, morals, and manners over commercial activity and all other activity in shaping the character of a commonwealth. Most notably, Burke contended in the reflections on the revolution in France that society and the state should not be conceived as a voluntary contract, like an economic contract. Quote, subordinate contracts for objects of mere occasional interest may be dissolved at pleasure, but the state ought not to be considered as nothing better than a partnership agreement in a trade of pepper and coffee, calico or tobacco or some other such low concern. To be taken up for a little temp- temporary interest and to be dissolved by the fancy of the parties. For Burke, society is not a, quote, partnership in things subservient only to the gross animal existence of a temporary and perishable nature. It is rather a, quote, partnership in all science, a partnership in all art, a partnership in every virtue and in all perfection. In other words, society is a contract but not in the Lockean sense of a consensual pact amongst individuals or in the market sense of a consensual agreement between parties for the satisfaction of wants. Those things of a, quote, temporary and perishable nature, as Burke writes. A partnership agreement is an ad hoc occurrence in which one party holds obligations and conditional obligations at that for a particular period only to the other party with whom he entered into a contract. In Burke's judgment, however, the essence sense of society transcended exchange relations, for it was a moral compact weaving together different generations into a durable and consecrated fabric. Civilization relied ultimately on the enduring ties of manners and love, courtesy and compassion, religion and the nobility, to sustain social order, not competition and trial-error experimentation. For Burke states in the reflections that the, quote, mixed system of opinion and sentiment, which... Had its origin in the ancient chivalry, was responsible for giving, quote, its character to modern Europe. In addition, Burke maintained that these cultural foundations provided the necessary preconditions for the growth of the modern commercial economy. As John Pocock, the great intellectual historian, observed in a pioneering essay, Burke re- reversed the belief, increasingly popular in elite circles in the 18th century, that commercial expansion was the cause of civility and polished manners. Burke rather maintained that a pre-commercial moral and social code furnished by religion, the nobility and chivalry formed the necessary moral basis for the appearance of commercial society. He writes in the reflections that quote, commerce and trade and manufacture are themselves perhaps but creatures, are themselves but effects, which as first causes we choose to worship. For they quote certainly grew under the same shade in which learning flourished. And may decay with their natural protecting principles. These natural protecting principles for Burke were the nobility and, the, and religion. According to Burke, then, even the sluggish performance of economic activity would not spell the end of civilization as long as these two pillars of social order prevailed. Quote Where trade and manufacture are wanting to a people, and the spirit of nobility and religion remains, sentiment supplies and not always ill supplies their place. This belief was compatible with his remark in the reflections that England's church establishment was the quote, first of our prejudices. Burke's message is not that commercial enterprise is irrelevant to, to the growth of civilization. Clearly he thought it was as demonstrated by his firm support uh, support for liberty of commerce throughout his political life. But his point is that commerce emerged under the steady presences of nobility and religious authority. Ancient manners of aristocratic morality and the Christian faith allowed trade to bloom in a stable and ethical social environment. Rather than perceiving transactional exchange as a parent of civility then, Burke maintained that civility created the moral requirements for the advent and evolution of transactional exchange. Quote, nothing is more certain, he writes, than that our manners, our civilization, and all the good things which are connected with manners and civilization have depended on, quote, the spirit of a gentleman, and the spirit of religion. In essence, Burke is arguing that competition between individuals and groups, voluntary contracts in economic, social, and political life, and the competitive price system were not sufficient for the growth of civilization. These activities generated commercial expansion and material prosperity, but they struggled to secure an element of permanence and water the seeds of moral sentiment in a Commonwealth. The frailty of voluntary contracts, according to Burke, should rest on more stable foundations of political and social order. Which is one pivotal reason why he was so adamant in defending church establishments, the clergy, the nobility, laws of inheritance, and the code of chivalry that predated the the modern commercial economy and that did not rely on the price mechanism for its perpetuation. For Burke, social relations should be conceived as something deeper than an environment of spontaneous competition between groups of individuals and institutions that seek to maximize individual preferences. Civilization, unlike markets, should rely on guiding principles that transcend voluntary barter and short-lived contracts. Burke articulated this hierarchy of ends even more succinctly in Thoughts on French Affairs, a writing during the French Revolution. When he wrote that in a country with a quote, crown, a court, splendid orders of knighthood, and a hereditary nobility, as well as a fixed permanent landed gentry a standing army and navy, and a church establishment. Wealth, new in, its, new in its acquisition and precarious in its duration, can never rank first or even near first. Rather, quote, wealth has its natural weight further than it is balanced and even preponderated amongst, them, amongst us among, among other nations by artificial institutions and opinions growing out of them. England's robust commercial wealth, in Burke's judgment, was counterpoised by political, religious, and social institutions, which tamed and redirected the acquisitive instinct toward higher aims. Burke later voiced this belief in his speech opposing a piece of legislation, the Traders' Correspondence Bill, in 1793. Again, during the French Revolution, after acknowledging that England was a commercial nation, Burke remarked that quote Her commerce was a subservient instrument to her greater interests, her security." her honor, and her religion. If the commercial spirit tended to break those, he insisted it should be lowered. These comments epitomized Burke's broader campaign in the 1790s to resist British exhortations to appease revolutionary France. Calls that were based in part on the hope that Anglo-French relations could be improved by greater commercial intercourse. Finally, and perhaps most important, Burke, In his notes for his 1792 speech on the Unitarians' Petition for Relief, he insisted that religion, quote, is one of the great bonds of human society and its object, the supreme good, the ultimate end and object of man himself. For quote, religion is the basis of civil society, he declared in the Reflections. Burke was a vocal defender of commerce and promoted, many, promoted many, many legislative activities intended to encourage it throughout Britain and her empire. Nevertheless, as these representative examples attest, he held that commerce and voluntary contracts in general should be subordinate to wider religious and ethical names of the nation, thereby painting a vision of a hierarchy of ends that communicates an explicit preference for faith and manners. For Burke, all human activity, economic and otherwise, should remain obedient to fixed moral principles and a timeless wisdom of religious instruction. Where does that leave us with my original question? Did Burke successfully overcome perhaps the most common and most uh, persuasive moral objection to commercial activity? The Aristotelian Thomistic concern that its unlimited nature militates against the moral ends of rational beings. As discussed, Burke was a vigorous supporter of market economies, particularly in England's domestic trades for reasons we are familiar with today. They promoted public prosperity, preserved individual liberty, helped distribute goods and services with efficiency and regularity, encouraged commercial virtues such as diligence in industry and raised standards of living for all orders of society. But his thought, I suggest, also mitigated Aristotle's concern about the non-teleological status of commercial exchange. For Burke, a flourishing commerce was a crucial ingredient of a prosperous civilization, but it did not secure the necessary basis for society's perpetuation, nor fulfill the ultimate imperatives of a Commonwealth. Instead, religion, morals, chivalry, chivalry and natural sentiment, not to mention law, land and property, and the nobility provided the ethical and social cement indispensable for the growth of civilization and for the achievement of our highest aspirations as rational beings who yearn happiness. And so I leave it to you all to determine whether this is a convincing enough of an argument to counter some of the most powerful criticisms of market economies that have been voiced from Aristotle's day to today, and whether Burke's lessons are worth recovering in our contemporary age of social drift. Thank you.
3: Hello, my name is Sam Greg and I'm the research director at the Acton Institute. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Collins. That was a fascinating address. I should mention that the full text will be published in the Journal of Markets and Morality in a forthcoming issue, complete with uh, academic apparatus and uh, I suspect more detail on some of the important points that you raised today. We now have some time for questions. So. Uh, I have some of my own and we're gonna be feeding some in from the audience. So my first question is is this, we see today uh, among many people on the left, political left, but also on the political right, the growing skepticism about free markets for many of the same reasons that you mentioned in your particular presentation. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly here of many people who describe themselves as conservatives, and, of course, Edmund Burke is often viewed as the uh, founder of modern conservatism. What do you think Burke would say about some of the contemporary debates that we see happening right now, all right, so to speak, concerning the place of markets in this broad conservative vision of what society should look like.
2: Thank you for that question. That's a good question. And I've often thought about uh, how Burke would respond to some of these arguments today that you discussed. A couple uh, brief thoughts. One, I think for both the right and the left, uh, consistent with his own manner of thinking on political economy, as described uh, in my lecture and book, uh, he would resist the increasing specialization of patterns of thought in describing this issue and in, in thinking about this issue, either for pre-market capitalism or for tradition, traditional morals religion, either for economic libertarianism or for civil society. His, the, the, a key ingredient of his way of thinking was an, integra- an emphasis on integrated harmony among these different elements of society. Even if they could not be fully reconciled in a metaphysical sense, in a practical sense, they offered balance and counterweights to one another so that you could preserve the fruits of market society while also protecting against its debasing tendencies um, as uh, described in my lecture. Today, I think he would emphasize that message uh, for these debates that we can benefit from what uh, capitalism free trade has to offer while also recognizing that it's not the end goal of human life and that yes, Sometimes it is worth sacrificing an additional amount of wealth in order to preserve those wider social, religious, moral foundations of civil society. For Burke, you can't have both uh, if, uh, if you uh, look at the issue appropriately and if you're willing to concede that we can enjoy material prosperity while also not sacrificing our religious and ethical aims of a people and of a nation.
3: Here's another question, which I think is on... Uh uh, at least the minds of some people who are scholars of Burke. And the question goes along these lines. Uh, Burke, of course, lived in uh, the conditions of a Britain that possessed uh, one, of the, one of the world's biggest global empires and was going to become even bigger uh, after his death. And uh, of course, it lost empire during part of his lifetime. But the, I guess the question, is, as I'm reading it, is this, is that Burke is not just someone who's living in the context of the British Empire. He's a supporter of the British Empire. He thinks the British Empire is, on balance, a good thing. Um, now, those who study questions of political economy and economics will say, well, isn't there a incompatibility with... Believing in something like yes. empire, uh, empire implying one political unit, empire implying that uh, the mother country owes special responsibilities and considerations to particular parts of the world rather than others, etc. How does, so the question is, how does Burke reconcile this commitment to empire with his uh, at least proto free trade views? when it comes to issues of economic exchange across the globe?
2: That's another fascinating question. First, Burke's general guiding principle for his views on empire. As you said, he defended the British Empire. His guiding principle is that he defended the British Empire uh, throughout the globe as long as the empire itself ruled with a benevolent hand, ruled morally over its subjects. That's commonly known for Burke's uh, uh, imperial political thought. So so for instance, in the case of India, he thought that uh, starting in the 1750s and 1760s going forward, that Britain increasingly uh, uh, acquired a more militant aggressive approach to governing uh, Indian affairs as exemplified by the growth of the uh, powers of the Britain's East India Company. And so he sought to revert the company's powers back to its original commercial purposes. Second, uh, we need to keep in mind his broader understanding of a social hierarchy. And so his views on empire, I argue, are consistent with these views on social hierarchy. There is an m- important room for the merchant class, for the rising classes, for the bourgeoisie, as we would say, um, to acquire wealth, be entrepreneurial, be, as today we would call innovative. He, didn't, he, he thought the word innovation was a pejorative term, but be um, uh, ambitious. As long as you had that underlying foundation of moral and social order, which for him was provided by your ecclesiastical authorities, the Church of England, and your landed yeah. aristocracy. Similarly, for empire, he reserved a wide, he, theoretically, he argued for a wide array of internal liberties of British subjects. So for instance, in the case of India, he argued for the East Indian Company to revive the uh, uh, local Indian markets, So Indians could trade freely uh, before the uh, company started to impose a monopoly um, on these activities. There was great room for these economic uh, elements of economic freedom within, in his view, the purview of the British empire. Mm-hmm. As you suggested, what he thought he defended the British Empire, he thought what was good for the empire was also good for these peoples. This is what today we consider a paternal, paternalistic attitude. Um, but for him, uh, the, his way of thinking is that as long as you provide this underlying, pre, uh, underlying stable presence, similar to the hereditary aristocracy and religion um, in England, um, this would allow for the promotion of commercial prosperity, not just in India, the British West Indies, uh, in America as well, the American colonies, and also preserve this element of stability that for him was crucial, both to domestic political peace uh, and international political order uh, in its colonies. And so uh, let me also add briefly, in some ways there's a debate about whether he was um, an ardent free trade advocate or, or more of a mercantilist. In his time period, I, as I explained in the book, you know, these lines tend to, tended to be blurred. Burke is a perfect example, Smith also. Um, you know, He defended particular regulations that uh, include the Navigation Acts, which confined the flow of trade within the British Empire, and which is also, uh, the the Navigation Acts have often been identified as the heart of mercantilism. But he also supported free trade between the British West Indies and American colonies, um, between Britain and America, uh, and free trade within uh, 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 India itself. So he tried to push this uh, idea of free trade within, again, this broader imperial presence that for him could promote both public prosperity and security for the British people and the subjects throughout
3: the world. Um, here's another related question, which flows, I think, very neatly from the previous one. Of course, uh, two parts of the empire that Burke paid a great deal of attention to were, firstly, as you mentioned, India. Uh, he also spent a lot of time thinking about the place of Ireland in that empire, partly because he was Irish himself, uh, uh, but also, I think, because uh, he was Clearly concerned with maintaining some type of stability in that part of the, the British realms, given the degree of conflict that existed between the Protestant ascendancy and the majority Catholic population. Now, one thing that that comes out of this is um, the sort of the, the the type of let's call it moral philosophy that he brings to bear upon how you deal with some of these very difficult situations. And I'd be interested to hear what you think, and this is part of because I'm interested in this subject, but also because the Acton Institute takes this very seriously, and that's the place of natural law yeah. in Burke's thought, both when it comes to questions of the limits and power of the power of the state, but also how that relates to questions of uh, economic institutions like private property.
2: So there is a running debate about whether, was a, uh, whether Burke was a uh, traditional Thomistic natural law theorist or not. The difficulty, of course, is that Burke did not write a systematic treatise on natural law or on moral philosophy, um, unlike Adam Smith. Um, so you have to piece together different statements, speeches, writings of his um, to paint a coherent picture. Um, uh, I argue, as I suggest in my book, um, that you know, Burke can be comfortably, comfortably placed in the natural law tradition But for him, he tended to use the language of moral law, sometimes he used law of nature. Um, And for him, he invoked this um, oftentimes to clarify the connections between, among different British subjects who were not English themselves, most famously in the case of India. His speeches on the impeachment uh, proceedings of Warren Hastings, he provides some of his most powerful statements on this underlying moral law that bound all human beings together, um, shared by some common human ground. He also invoked uh, 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 the language of nature in in regard to Irish Catholics um, and uh, Anglo-Irish affairs um, in some of his writings, tracks on proprietary laws, uh, et cetera. Uh, He held this moral element in society, which he blended with, and I argue, his conception, um, his uh, allegiance to the Anglican Church uh, and uh, and his belief that a moral law was not necessarily antithetical to his other embrace of the importance of utility in prescribing and recognizing the value of particular institutions that last throughout time. For him, you could reconcile these two without again, similar to his other point about uh, merging stability with change in the political economy while, um, while, while, while realizing this element of utility in concrete practical political situations while providing this moral basis uh, uh, for, uh, for, def- def- for recognizing moral truths and defending people uh, who are oppressed across the globe. If there's one thing, I would say more than anything else, um, if there's one thing Burke had a gift for, beyond his rhetoric, um, beyond his uh, uh, his writing skills, his oratory skills, it was his instinct for justice. His instinct for recognizing when there was injustice going on, when people were being oppressed, who are unjustifiably uh, so, uh, as the case of India, Ireland, uh, the American colonies, uh, slavery as well. Uh, and this justice, I agree, was grounded in, his conception of a moral law that recognized this sort of faint cosmopolitan uh, inclination in this thought.
3: Okay, That's, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the subject of justice because that is uh, very much central to the next question that is, is being asked, which is, and we'll do two more questions before we turn back to Father Sirico. Uh, and the first question, and I'm, I'm gonna give you both of these questions at once so you can answer them both in the same response. One question we have that's come in via email is, how do Burke's views on the hierarchy of ends relate to normative questions about what is just? Is not justice concerned with what we look to the state for? So that's the first the first question. The second question is um, less about Burke himself and more about um, the present state of affairs. And the, the question is, are there, economists so economic thinkers today who while being um, supporters of free trade free markets like Burke avoid some of the blind spots that's the question that's the word used by the questioner some of the blind spots of Hayek when it comes to uh, sort of the the, um, the ends of human flourishing
2: thank you so let me uh, just review the first question. Burke's conception of justice. How does he understand what is just? Um, in the- it's
3: also it's it's related to the. I'm just pulling it up again. Yep. It's um, it's related to the question of um, Burke's views on the hierarchy of ends oh, yeah. relate to normative questions about what is just. Yeah. Is not justice con- concerned with what we look to the state for? Oh yes. So yeah. that was the first question. The second question is. Um, I guess who, in, in, in summary form is who are the uh, economists today who, who basically, I suppose, accept some of Burke's insights into the nature of social order? Thank you. Burke
2: did believe, um, this separates him from uh, libertarians, some classical liberals, he did believe that there was a role for the state in promoting a conception of justice. Um, he, he, he's not necessarily what we call a big government uh, thinker, but you know, consistent with his sort of nuanced way of thinking, justice could be facilitated, could be uh, encouraged, for instance, by the Church of England in promoting um, uh, our religious sentiments and religious truths. And uh, religion, of course, uh, occupied the highest level of this hierarchy of ends. Um, he did not argue in the case of England um, to uh, uh, disestablish the church and just permit competing Anglican versus dissenting sex to win, win as many followers as possible. Um, he thought this would uh, create social disorder, and he thought that you could accommodate a church, a state-established church, along with freedom of conscience. Um, it's one thing Burke abhorred uh, the idea to dictate someone's freedom of conscience, conscience, but he also thought that you could accommodate freedom of conscience with the church establishment. Um, you, one person did not have a right to topple a, a, an established church um, and other established social institutions. For him, then, state did have a role in promoting this conception of justice. Um, in terms of the an uh, additional dimension to his idea of justice, um, morality and manners. Uh, the hereditary aristocracy, this is somewhat uncomfortable from an American perspective, right, because we like to think we don't have hereditary aristocrats or um, uh, uh, there was a role, There was an, an integral role for hereditary aristocrats to set the moral, cultural tone for society. Um, he, he criticized aristocrats throughout, a, throughout his life, but he recognized their function in promoting this idea of morality, courtesy, manners, they did noblesse oblige, uh, and charitable and benevolent endeavors to those less privileged than we were. Uh, and he thought this was a necessary ingredient ingredient uh, to promote a moral and religious, uh, ethos that transcended, uh, economic youth, utili- utilitarian satisfaction. Um, which is why he supported the law of primogeniture, uh, laws of inheritance to sustain property from generation to generation. Um, second question, uh, the, uh, uh economic thinkers and blind spots So those economists who are not, who, who recognize the social dimension, um, to uh, political economy, market economy. Yes, it's
3: basically, uh, let me just quickly, yeah. are there economic thinkers today who, while supportive of markets like Edmund Burke, yeah. avoid, what the question says the blind spots of Hayek, particularly when it comes to sort of the ends of human flourishing?
2: Yeah. Uh, one econo- economist uh, I have benefited greatly from, and I think who has a deeper, I don't know if he goes as far as Burke, but a deeper Understanding of these social and moral dimensions of economic life uh, is Thomas Sowell, Mm -hmm. uh, distinguished economist. You know, dating back to his uh, 1980 book *Knowledge and Decisions*, um, really understood uh, 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 the connection between politics, economics, morality, and society. Um, He was not, uh, again, he was not. I don't don't know if he would go as far as Burke in some of these matters, but I think he holds a uh, this sort of capacious, integrated understanding of the interlocking um, connections into that, uh, uh make him certainly worth reading. Um, you know, Hayek himself, he's, he, I mean, I, I, he's one of my favorite thinkers as well. Um, and he's, I think far better than some other economists in understanding, um, these dimensions of economic life. Um, he mentioned the constitution of Liberty, the compatibility between tradition and freedom. Uh, he recognized that spontaneous order, uh, did not simply include, um, pro- the profit motive, but also the language, customs, institutions that emerged throughout time. Um, I just suggest that Burke held uh, a more, uh, a robust, uh, a uh, clear conception of this hierarchy of events. Uh, briefly, other economists, um, Deidre McCloskey, uh, her work in the bourgeois virtues, her bringing in literary, historical, philosophical references, I think, um, provides a more uh, wider understanding of, uh, of political economy. Um, uh, so I would, uh, those, those are two of the uh, uh, the first economists that come to my mind. Yeah.
3: It's interesting, I think, that uh, towards the end of his life, Hayek described himself as becoming a Burkean Wig, so I think that's that's quite a that that speaks to your point about Hayek. Um, Two people I would add would be I mean one person is is uh, of course Michael Novak who wrote about these issues all the time, Um, and of course the Acton Institute is uh, very clearly trying to do that. Another economist I think who's doing more of that is of course. the Nobel economist Vernon Smith, who I think is very clearly integrating a concern for some of the things that Burke was interested in into his general case for markets. So we are up against a time limit now. So I'm going to turn back to uh, to Father Sirico for the formal presentation.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, This was a a very interesting discussion, and I wish we could uh, go on and on, uh, and perhaps we'll have an opportunity in person uh, to continue the discussion. Uh, It's my great pleasure now to present the 2020 Novak Award to Dr. Gregory M. Collins by the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty Uh, on this, the 27th day of January 2021, here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but being transmitted uh, electronically uh, around the world. Uh, You'll be happy to know that we're also going to transmit the check, uh, which we may do uh, probably electronically just to kind of keep with the tradition here, uh, and maybe even in Bitcoin, who knows. But congratulations, Dr. Collins. Uh, We wish you well in your, your future endeavors.
3: Well, that concludes our event today. I'd like to thank you all for joining with us to for this uh, fascinating discussion. Uh, I'd encourage you to follow the Acton Institute on whatever form of social media that you're interested in. I'd also encourage you to follow uh, Dr Collins' work. I do know that he has a Twitter account and uh, <laughs> he is often writing and, and commenting on all sorts of things related to Burke and the Scottish Enlightenment and Adam Smith and all the good things that I think that the Acton Institute is very much committed to. I'd like to quickly close by mentioning uh, two particular things to keep in mind uh, for those of you who uh, continue to be interested in the work of the Acton Institute and some of the particular programming that we're doing. The first is the Acton Institute's annual Business Matters Conference. The title for this will be Business Matters 2021, Certain Principles for Uncertain Times. The date of that particular event is February the 25th, uh, 2021, and the timing will be from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And among the speakers, we're going to have have economists, business leaders, philosophers uh, discussing what it means for business to try and consistently follow sound principles of economics, sound principles of business, but also sound principles that lead to the virtuous life in uh, our present circumstances, which all around the world, uh, I think uh, it's very clear that we can accurately describe these as highly uncertain. And that will be a virtual conference which people will be able to register for. So I know some notifications have already gone out for that. More will be forthcoming and we look forward to many people joining us for that particular event. Again, the date is February the 25th, 2021, 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern time. The Second uh, event that I'd like to quickly mention to you is our next Acton lecture series. This will be occurring on March the 18th, 2021, It will be a free live-streamed event with Dr. Anthony Bradley, who presently teaches at King's College, but has had and continues to have a long and formal relationship with the Acton Institute. And he'll be talking about a book which he has edited and contributed to, and the book is called Why Black Lives Matter. Uh, The book, I think, is a very good compilation of various writers thinking about some of the questions faced by African-Americans throughout the United States today, the economic dimension, the political dimension, the social dimension, and of course, the moral dimension. That will be on March the 18th, 2021, uh, and notifications will be sent out for that. For that, again, I mentioned free live streamed event with Dr. Anthony Bradley, who I think is one of America's leading commentators on these types of questions and brings together a great deal of theological and economic knowledge when it comes to thinking about many of these questions. So that's it for today. Uh, Thank you, Father Sirico, for being able to uh, preside at today's event. Thank you, of course, to uh, Dr. Collins, who's being streamed in from Yale University, where uh, I can assure you he has been unable to more or less escape for the past year. Uh, I'd also like to thank the tech crew who were involved in setting this up. I'd like to thank my colleague, Dan Hugo, who was responsible for organizing many of the logistics of this particular event. And I'd like to thank you, our viewing audience, for joining us today for what I hope you found to be a stimulating discussion about one of the great thinkers uh, whose economic thought, I think, is now much more greatly appreciated as a consequence of the work of scholars like Dr. Collins. So thank you very much, thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you in the near future.